As many of you have heard us speak about, when we first came to look at this place, it was the winter, 1975, and Joseph and Jack Cornfield and I had each been back from Asia just a couple of years at that point. Joseph and I from India and Jack from Thailand, where we'd We'd all been practicing and studying. We came back in 1974 and began teaching together. We would go lead a retreat. Somebody would write to us and say, well, you know, I can get together some friends and a cook and house. Would you come lead a retreat? We'd lead the retreat, and at the end, we never knew if there'd be another retreat until the next letter arrived, and we just lived like that for a while, more than a year. It's very uh, grassroots kind of existence. And then one day, somebody said to us, well, maybe you should start a retreat center of your own. He said, well, it would be like a sacred site in this country, and it would be a way for all of that energy that gets created as people come together to practice for it to not be dispersed at the end of of some period of time, at the end of the retreat. So we said, sure, that sounds great. To the sorrow of many generations of staff people, most of the energy for the retreat was on the East Coast. And so rather than staking out Maui way back when, (laughs) we... We were in New England <laughs> looking for a retreat center in, in upstate New York, and we wandered around looking at a lot of different sites when somebody suggested that we come to this place in Barry, Massachusetts, where the Catholic Church had a novitiate that was for sale. So we came here in December of 1975 to look at the place, and we really couldn't decide what to do. On the one hand, it seemed just perfect for a retreat center. I mean, here we were, you know, down Pleasant Street, two and a half miles from the center of Barry, which was not very bustling. And it was so quiet, it was so serene, it was so pretty, it just seemed absolutely perfect. But on the other hand, it seemed really big. I mean, here was this place that... (laughs) You know, it was it was big for us, and um, you know we'd been living this this kind of existence, this very uncertain existence, and we had no idea how many people would ever really be interested in learning this particular type of meditation in this culture. So, in trying to decide, we went to downtown Barry for lunch, and as those of you who passed through it, you know, it's a very classical New England town with a town green in the center of it, and in those days there was a monument on the town green which had engraved upon it the Barry Town motto, which is tranquil and alert. So we looked at that and we say, okay, we said, okay, there's an omen. Any town that has a motto like tranquil and alert should have a retreat center in it. <laughs> and it's still quite a lot of fun, you know, uh, for me to think that this is the motto of, of my town. Some friends of mine got married here and Tranquil and Alert was stamped on their wedding certificate. 
which I thought was a pretty good blessing for a wedding, for marriage. One day, uh, it was Miocian, actually, who was reading the rather slim volume that is the history of the town of Barry, And she, this, this main part of the building behind me uh, was built as a private home. It was a mansion built by someone who was at one point the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. His name was Colonel Gaston. And in reading this book about the history of Barry, Miocian came upon the fact that Colonel Gaston also had a motto that he strove to live by. And Colonel Gaston's motto was, you should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. So... (laughs) which I found especially amusing juxtaposed with tranquil and alert, you know. Made me wonder how well he got along with his neighbors. But I, I often use that example, those two stories, because I believe that very often we do have a motto, each of us. We have some encapsulated philosophy that expresses what we dedicate our lives to, that expresses what we think we're capable of, that expresses where we are looking for a sense of meaning, a thread of meaning, through all the disparate events and circumstances that come our way, pleasant and unpleasant. Very often we have some kind of motto that may be clearly conscious or half-conscious or quite unconscious, but if we look carefully, we can find it. And it may range from tranquil and alert to you should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. But what are our lives about, really? Very often that sense of aspiration, of dedication, of commitment, of meaningfulness is very meager. It's very small. One of my Tibetan teachers named Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche was was very provocative and influenced me quite profoundly in this way. He used to say, and this is a terrible paraphrase, but he used to say something like, why is your sense of aspiration so timid? Why is it so small? Why do you think you are capable of so little? Why not aspire to be a completely free being for the sake of all beings everywhere? Why not? This, I think, is one of the things that happens in a way every time we sit down to meditate. I'll say that symbolically. It happens every time we begin a walking practice. It happens every time we practice being mindful in any activity. It's almost as though we are asking ourselves, why not? One of my teachers once said, the most important moment in a meditation session is the moment you sit down to do it. Because that's the moment when you are challenging a great many assumptions about being stuck, about being limited, about being bound to the past, bound to habit, bound to the way things were, bound to a very small aspiration. Just sitting down to do it, you are confronting immediately that question and hopefully opening into that state of, why not? We not have a much more immense, vast, 
open sense of possibility. Why not? It's a very interesting question. Really, what is our motto? What is our dedication? What is our aspiration? If we can stay in touch with that, then all of the different experiences we have, pleasant and unpleasant, welcome and disappointing, it doesn't really matter so much. Because that they can be seen in a much bigger context of the unfolding in a realistic way of our actual dedication. So why not aspire to be a completely free being for the sake of all beings? Which brings me back to compassion. It's very important to look at whatever degree compassion or compassion does or does not figure into our dedication in a spiritual life. It's so easy to come to meditation and really have the thought that the meditation is about, its purpose is to acquire exciting new experiences so that, in effect, we are replacing one set of desires for another. In a worldly sense, we might easily think, wow, you know, I wish I had a new car. But in a, in a retreat center, it might range from, I wish I could levitate, or I wish something really exciting could happen in my practice so that the next time I had an interview, it wouldn't be so boring. Or I wish something so breathtaking would happen that every room, everyone in the room would notice, you know, and, or, I wish I weren't so bleak inside. I wish I could improve. I wish I could trounce my thoughts and replace them with a whole other set that are a little more lively and, and wonderful. And I wish, and I wish, and I wish. But ultimately, the practice needs to be about the purification of our hearts so that we are existing with much greater compassion for ourselves and much, much greater compassion for others. Not in a contrived sense or in an artificial sense. You know, like now I'm a spiritual person, so I have to be particularly loving in this trying circumstance. But in a natural way, because when we see things clearly, then our hearts are purified. We're much more at ease. And there's a natural radiance of that spirit of compassion. It's like the spirit of generosity. So practice doesn't have to be about getting and having and maintaining and and somehow filling a void inside of us. It's about learning how to radically transform our relationship to ourselves and to others through forces like compassion. That understanding, that dedication can be like a mirror into which we look. Is this really what's motivating me? Or am I doing this for some other reason? 
it's actually a tremendous relief when that force of compassion becomes more a part of what is motivating us. Because then all of that terrible ordeal of striving and wanting and trying to have some great experience only to have it and then watch it fade. All of that effort to get it back, all of that remorse and the horror. Oh no, you know, I knew I shouldn't have walked outside. (laughs) It wouldn't have gone away. All of that dismay and the comparison, well, everyone else in the room must be really enjoying themselves while I am sitting here in so much pain. While all of that might arise, none of it has to be predominant. We don't have to be subsumed in any of that. when we can center back in touch with this much more basic motivation. We can watch these things come and go and actually be kind of amused. Developing a greater sense of compassion is like a fire that continually purifies our motivation as we go along. Everybody undoubtedly practices with a great many motives intertwined some wonderful and some probably not so wonderful. But if we can reach underneath to hone that very basic sense of purpose and infuse that with compassion rather than being beguiled by the forces of desire and clinging and comparing and judging ourselves, then we can be free no matter what is happening. It's not such a bad practice in the beginning of every sitting to set an aspiration a little bit higher than, you know, may I get through the sitting or (laughs) something like that. To remember I mean, it's really amazing, you know, sitting up here and looking out to think how much everybody has given up to be here. Even in a troubled world, it's a lot of sacrifice to be here. You know, you give up a lot of control over your choices, your laundry, your food. It's a big thing. And it's awesome. It's really awesome. It's wonderful. Something propels that willingness. You know, certainly it's not how we have grown up in this culture, which so much emphasizes events and experience and stuff, and so that it's hard to even imagine. Well, you all know, you've all tried to explain to somebody, you know, what it means to leave it all behind and to come to a place like this. There's something, and we can lose touch with that very beautiful force when we get lost in 
in the habits of the mind, like comparing and judging and evaluating. You know, this is a wretched sitting. It's not a bad practice to either every morning or even at the beginning of every sitting affirm that deeper sense of motivation, of aspiration. And it's also a really good practice at the end of the sitting or at the end of the day to do what we traditionally do at the end of the retreat, which is the sharing of merit. It's believed, merit is one of those funny translations, but it it means not stuff that's somewhere stacked in a warehouse, but it's believed very strongly that when we act toward the good, when we aim the mind toward the good, it's an act of generosity, kindness, restraint. You know, we could have blurted something hurtful out and we restrain ourselves. And meditation, things like that, that there's an actual force that's generated through that. That's, that's the force of merit. It's like a moral force. And it's believed very strongly in traditional Buddhist cultures that that force, that energy, can be shared with others. It can be dedicated. It's not something we keep as a kind of trophy. And so at the end of a day, for example, you can share the merit of the day for those people who've helped you, those people who are suffering, to all beings everywhere, so that it's like a reminder that what you've done all day was never for yourself alone. It could never be for yourself alone. And you're, you're articulating that very consciously in that offering. The merit doesn't come from having a superlative experience and being bathed with white light and, and bliss. The merit comes from sitting down. The merit comes from trying again. The merit comes from when you find yourself wandering far, far, far away from the breath or your primary object, letting go, starting again. It's the aiming of the mind toward the good. That's the force of the merit. It's also a good practice to do, which reminds us of our much greater aspiration. So aspiration is one whole part of that picture. And especially when it's infused with a state of compassion. And remember that it's not about a kind of strange idealism. It's not about laying a veneer of seeming compassion on top of a seething reality of difficult feelings. We really do want to see quite directly and nakedly, without pretense, everything that we're feeling and everything that is actually arising in our minds. You know, it's easy to say, well, I, I mustn't feel fear, I must only feel compassion, and after all, that's my dedication to be a compassionate being, or you know, I mustn't feel guilt, I mustn't feel anger, and, and yet we do, in fact, perhaps feel fear and guilt and anger. It's a very delicate balance, having very clear and pure awareness of whatever's happening, without exception, 
not blocking anything and not denying anything. And at the same time, remembering we don't necessarily have to relate to everything in the same old ways. There's a world of possibility in our openness that we can have greater compassion for ourselves. We really can. Even as we look at the whole range of whatever we might be feeling, we can have greater compassion for others, even though we might also be feeling quite annoyed or irritated. There's so many things that we do or so many things we might admire, let me put it that way, about taking a risk, doing things in a different way, being adventurous, not being caught in a rut. And in a conventional sense, we think of that and we think, oh, that means, you know, going on a safari or climbing a mountain or something like that. But what would it mean in the mind to be willing to take a risk, to have a really wild adventure? And to do that toward kindness, to do that toward openness and compassion and caring. So it's sort of in that spirit, even as we practice being aware of everything, sometimes it's very powerful just to say, what would it be like if instead of judging this mind state right now, I practice some compassion for myself. What would it be like, instead of judging mercilessly that yogi who's standing in my way, I actually stopped for a moment and said, may you be free of your suffering. You know, it's not done in a way to be pretentious or hypocritical, but it's that kind of adventure. Wow, what would it be like if I didn't react in the same old way and turn my mind this way So it's a tremendous exploration. There's a very big difference between aspiration in that way, like playing with the mind, expanding our boundaries, getting a new sense of possibility, and expectation, and demand. And that's part of the difference. You're not trying to act as though what you're feeling you shouldn't be feeling. There's a whole side to aspiration which takes into account the truth of how things unfold, the reality of our experience. One time, in the time of the Buddha, somebody referring to the flood of suffering in life asked the Buddha, how did you, Lord Buddha, cross the flood? And the Buddha replied, without lingering, friend, and without hurrying across the flood. Then the question came, but how did you, without lingering and without hurrying, cross the flood? The Buddha replied, friend, when I lingered, then I sank. When I hurried, I was swept away. So not lingering, not hurrying, I crossed the flood. I really like that example for its sense of delicacy, just the rhythm, without lingering, without hurrying, one step at a time, 
I cross the flood. To understand that means that we have to understand what it means to accept what our experience is, not to succumb to it, not to collapse into it, not to be closed off by it, to have any sense of of movement shut down by it, but to understand that if we linger, we will get possessed by the flood, by the waves. Instead of moving, we will be overcome. But if we hurry, if we try to push the water out of our way and resent the waves that are occurring, naturally we'll be exhausted. We'll be just as overcome. It's just the same way in a spiritual experience or meditative experience. It's one step at a time. We may have, and should have, hopefully, a tremendous, open, vast sense of aspiration, of commitment, of dedication, and also a tremendous sense of delicacy, of surrender, of taking one step at a time. Because that, in fact, is how we breathe life into a spiritual practice. It's one step at a time. Really, I think, in general, we need to do less than we think we need to do. But what we need to do, we need to do all the time. I once had this funny experience years ago. I was in New York City, and I was checking into a hotel. I was going up to my room in the elevator when I realized I was carrying my very heavy suitcase in my arms and I had the brilliant thought, put it down. The elevator will carry it up for you. (laughs) Which became a kind of spiritual paradigm for me. Many times we are doing too much. We're trying to fix ourselves and fiddle and make the perfect breath and, you know, have something go away and have 15 more minutes of that. We're really doing a lot too much. We can afford to relax and be more at ease with our experience, be much more gentle and accepting with our experience, whatever it is. Let the elevator do it. There's this wonderful quotation from the Taoist tradition says, stop setting snares, get delicate, relax and follow where that leads you. Clouds may be thick or thin, windows may be dark or bright, take it easy. You can break the poor old dragon's jaw by pulling teeth for meaning. Stumble along as upright as you can and don't be avaricious. Who tries to hold what flashes in the worldly storm will drown. Let the sun and the moon handle rising and falling. I'll pretend I know nothing. That's it. Stumble along as upright as you can. Don't be avaricious. Let the sun and the moon handle rising and falling. Thoughts will come and go. Feelings will come and go. Sensations will come and go. It's all right. The unfolding of a path 
In fact, I think it's kind of a mysterious thing. It's not always so clear how one thing leads to the next in the immediate moment. It takes a long time to understand how our practice may be deepening because it may not feel like it's deepening. There's really only one thing we need to do, which is to be mindful, to be present with whatever our experience is. But we have to do that a lot. We have to do that as many moments in a row as we can. And when we've forgotten about it and we've lost touch and we've gotten disconnected, that's what we need to come back to, is just that. So this is a little hard to describe, but it's almost as though in the beginning of my practice I had uh, a kind of model in my mind that what I needed was much greater depth I had very ordinary experiences, very crude experiences, very painful experiences, and I thought, well, I've got to break through them to the magnificent subtlety which is undoubtedly lurking within, but it's out of my reach. And so I pushed against my experience, and I pushed and I pushed, trying to get to that greater state of subtlety, which was in there somewhere. And after some time, I realized that it was the wrong model, that what I'd been practicing was dissatisfaction, because I didn't like what was happening in the moment. I thought it was wrong, it was too rough, it was too superficial, and I was pushing, trying to get deeper, but all I was really practicing emotionally, psychologically, was dissatisfaction. I don't like this, I don't want it, it's got to, you know, I've got to change it. And I realized that in truth, not just as solace for those people who can't get deep, but in truth, what matters more than anything is the continuity of awareness, whatever you are being aware of. Even if object after object after object after object is something you would never have asked for. You know, if it's the hindrances if it's bodily pain, if it's trivial thoughts, it doesn't matter. What matters is as much continuity of awareness as possible. So instead of having almost like that spatial model of you've got to get deeper, you've got to break through, which in fact you can't do. I mean, I couldn't do it. Maybe you can do it. (laughs) I couldn't do it. I couldn't make my experience other than what it was no matter how hard I tried, I realized, wow, there is something I can do (laughs) that really anybody can do, and that is add more moments of mindfulness in a row. And that was enough. This is the kind of wisdom or understanding that needs to accompany even the vastest sense of aspiration, because otherwise we're continually lost in our judgments, again, of not being good enough of not matching some kind of expectation or sense of demand. To do the simple thing that we need to do and to do it as much as we possibly can do it, wherever we are, whether it's sitting, walking, drinking a cup of tea, taking a shower, opening a doorknob, whatever it might be, that one simple thing. The Buddha had a very simple example as many of them were, that I always found very inspiring. And that was 
A mind will get filled with qualities like mindfulness or loving-kindness moment by moment, the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. As soon as I heard that example, which was way back when, I really loved it, because as soon as I heard it, I could see myself doing one of two things. One was standing by the bucket and lost in this blissful daydream about how wonderful it was going to be when the bucket was filled. Like, isn't it going to be great? I'm going to be fully enlightened. I'll be back in New York. You know, I'll be floating down the streets. It'll be so amazing. But lost in that fantasy, I would forget that what I needed to do in that moment was add one more drop. I lost touch with the patience and the humility that was necessary just to say, okay, now, be mindful now, what's happening now? And the other thing I would do, I could see myself doing very easily, was standing by that bucket and looking inside and saying, ooh, it's really kind of empty in there. That's never going to get filled. And once again, not taking the time or making the effort, right then, add one more drop. But the mind will get filled with mindfulness and loving kindness moment by moment. The way that bucket will get filled drop by drop. Since that time, very early in my practice, when I first heard the experience and heard the image, I experienced, or I thought of another aspect of the image, which, which was to see myself standing by the bucket and kind of ignoring it completely in order to peer off into someone else's bucket and say, oh, how are you doing? Oh, that looks good, or that doesn't look so good. Instead of paying attention to what I needed to pay attention to, which was my own experience. So moment after moment, this is how our aspiration becomes real. In that simple way, in that humble way, using all of our experience. And it's immeasurable, you know, to think that we've come this far, this far, this far. It's crazy-making. You know, every time we, in, in effect, stop the process in order to stand back and look, not only have we cut ourselves off from the immediacy of our direct experience, but we've stepped away into this very arid realm of evaluation, and we don't have the tools to really evaluate. Kind of reminds me of the story, I don't know, maybe Joseph has already told it, because it's about him, about when he was, is that when I was writing my second book, I think, and the way I put it in the unedited version, I said, when Joseph was younger, and the editor wrote back and said, well, that could mean when he was 40, <laughs> you know, what do you mean when he was younger? So I wrote, when he was about nine years old, he grew his first garden. Did he tell the story? He grew, <laughs> he grew his first garden, and he said that he would get so excited when the carrots started showing that kind of green, fluffy stuff on top that he would pull the carrots up to help them grow faster. <laughs> and that's the kind of thing we can do. You know, we sort of mess with our experience in a way, to make it go faster, to make it go better. Or we step back and we evaluate and we check and we, we get very cold in a way, rather than being completely engaged with what is. We're trying to figure out what needs to be better. It's a very mysterious process. We will hardly know 
Another story I often tell is about these two letters that we got very soon after we opened the place, which were remarkable for how they were addressed. The first was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society instead of the Insight Meditation Society. And the second was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. For a very long time, I used to look at that envelope, the Instant Meditation Society. It was really my favorite. I would think, what were they thinking? <laughs> you know, it's such a, an indication of our cultural norm. You know, I have to get it instantly. But nowadays, and for some years now, actually, the Hindsight Meditation Society has been my favorite because I've seen it many, many, many times. I've put in hours of metta practice, of loving-kindness practice, or compassion practice, thinking nothing was happening, only to look back later and say, oh, wow, something was happening. It wasn't something I could feel at the time, that I had that kind of immediate gratification, which, of course, we like, which would be very nice, but it wasn't happening that way. Some evolution was occurring at a much deeper level than what I could perceive. I put in many hours of mindfulness practice in the same way, wondering, what's this about? You know, this is the same stuff I was thinking about on day one, and it's day 48. But the, the tiny changes of being more patient, being kinder to oneself, seeing more the transparency of that thought, seeing it quicker, even though it's the same old thought, that's hard to measure, that stuff. And if you're trying to clock it, you know, well, how was it this morning, and <laughs> is it any better this afternoon? It's going to be immensely frustrating. It takes a huge letting go and a willingness to surrender to the process, to let the process unfold. Otherwise, you're going to be like Joseph at nine years old, pulling up those carrots. It's not going to make it go any faster. It's just going to make it much more painful. So with as immense an aspiration as we can have and should have, we have to recognize the actual evolution. Things take time. And all we can do is add this moment's worth of mindfulness. That's all we need to do, thank goodness. But if we don't do that, everything else is like a story that we're telling ourselves. It's going to be a very mysterious unfolding. And we are very content-oriented. We tend to like pleasure, to not like pain, to want to hold on to pleasant experience because we think it's going to make us a better person. We tend to push away unpleasant experience because we're afraid of it and we think it's a bad sign, it's a bad thing. It's quite startling to enter a realm where people tell you it doesn't matter what you're experiencing. What matters is how you're relating to what you're experiencing. It's a whole different thing, and it's challenging to let go of some of that judgment and that rigidity of mind. And as some of you have heard me talk about when Sairu Pandita was first teaching here in 1984, somehow that retreat came up with or produced more stories than any other single experience in anyone's life, including mine. And 
I would go in to see him. He was in room M101 upstairs doing interviews six days a week. And I'd go in to see him six days a week. And he also had this, he had a certain kind of teaching style where he would say the same thing, it seemed, over and over and over and over again, every interview, until something shifted inside of you. And then he would go on to some new thing for some period of time. So we went through various experiences like that together. I would go in to see him and describe this wonderful, extraordinary fantastic experience I'd had in meditation. And he would look at me and he would say, well, did you note it? And I would think, what do you mean did I note it? It was great. (laughs) What he meant by noting it, of course, was both a literal noting, because that's the school that he's so highly trained in, of placing the mental label on the experience. And also, more profoundly, he meant that symbolic relationship to it, to that experience. Were you with it? Were you aware with it? with it? Were you balanced in face of it? All of that was implied in that single question, were you noting it? And I'd go in to see him many times with a very distressing, unpleasant, unwelcome experience to describe. And I would describe it, and he would look at me, and he would say, well, did you note it? And I'd think, what do you mean that I noted? It was terrible. This just went on day after day after day after day. And one day I walked out the door and I thought, I wonder why people say he's such a great teacher. He never says anything. You know, all he ever says is, did you note it? And it's like we brought him all the way from Burma, you know, to lead this retreat for senior students. And it's like he's not teaching anything. All he's saying is, did you note it? And this still went on day after day after day after day. And then one day it's like I got it. And I thought, oh, there was something extraordinary in his, almost like in his austerity of approach. It was like really true. He did not care so much what was happening to me. He cared about whether I was mindful of what was happening to me because the pleasure and the pain and the beautiful experiences and the terrible experiences, they come and they go constantly, just like they do in life. It's not any flatter here than it is in life. What he was concerned about was the purity of my heart in the face of whatever was happening to me, which means, did you note it? Could you be with it? Were you mindful of it? That really was all he cared about. And despite the the austerity of that approach, it was a tremendous gift. Did you note it? The place where aspiration and surrender come together is in a place of diligence. It's a very steady, persistent effort. Once we were in Nepal with a Tibetan teacher, Tuka Urgen Rinpoche, and somebody said to him, you know, it's really hard for me to hear all of these stories about, say, people in the time of the Buddha, you know, who walked in and the Buddha said hello and they got fully enlightened, you know, or somebody in... In presence of Milarepa or one of the great sages who walked up to the cave and, you know, gave him a cup of tea and he got enlightened. And, you know, he said, it's very hard for me to hear all that because it makes enlightenment seem so remarkable and so remote, so very far from 
anything I could ever experience myself. And it's given me this huge doubt about my own capacity to practice. And uh, Rinpoche said in response, if you want to have confidence and faith, you need to rest it in diligence. You need to really come forth, come forward, make the effort, add that next drop into the bucket. That's what will make real all of the, the hopes and dreams that we might bring to bear in the practice. William James said, we measure ourselves by many standards, our strength and intelligence, our wealth, even our good luck are things which warm our heart and make us feel ourselves a match for life. But deeper than all such things and able to suffice unto itself without them is the sense of the amount of effort we can put forth. One who can make none is but a shadow. One who can make much is a hero. It's effort in the sense of right effort, one moment at a time. Having a sense of immense possibility for ourselves, not holding ourselves back at all, not limiting ourselves, and doing what we need to do without withholding, without comparing, and without forgetting the tremendous value that's contained in something as simple as being mindful in each and every moment. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.